Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. So hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. Yes, I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Texas on a beautiful fall day. It's gorgeous here. I'm looking out at a beautiful oak tree from my window. Today, I welcome the author of an absolutely fascinating and uh, elegantly written book, which blends uh, quantum physics with near-death experiences, an investigation of the Shroud of Turin, all to make a compelling argument for the idea of consciousness as the fundamental basis of existence and the limitless potential for Humanity, which is you and me, folks. Pleasure to welcome Dr. Andrew Silverman to today's show. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. So, um, yeah, I know you. You. Uh, one of the things that sort of gets your goat, so to speak, is uh, is the idea of artificial intelligence, right? And uh, there's many fears right now about uh, the danger. I think Stephen Hawking. You reference him in the book. Uh, right. You know, saying that, uh, you know, this may be the, the death knell to organic uh, human life on planet Earth because, uh, you know, artificial intelligence may usurp us. Um, and, of course, you, your whole book is about, uh, you know, the, the difference between art, artificial, um, quote, intelligence and, and consciousness. So tell us about that. Yes, I, I I like that you uh, put the intelligence in quotes with the with the artificial because in fact uh, Professor Roger Penrose, who I'm not sure if you know, uh, just been uh, awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics. I saw that. Um, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, and he wrote a wonderful book in uh, in about just over thirty years ago called The Emperor's New Mind where uh, sort of a a play on words on the the emperor's new coat, uh, where basically it's about artificial intelligence and how everyone is in a rush to say how wonderful it is and how we're making it and and this machine is now conscious and all this kind kind of nonsense. And actually, there's nothing there. It's just a it's just a machine. Having said that, the fact that it's not conscious doesn't make it any less dangerous. In fact, it makes it in many ways more dangerous because not being conscious cannot have conscience. So machines are not malevolent. They wish no harm on people, but all they can do is blindly follow the program. And the problem is, as as people like, as you say, Hawking and uh, Professor Martin Rees and many others have pointed out, that their danger is that there are unanticipated consequences of those programs that we don't think about. For example, if uh, you program uh, some kind of of robot, in quotes, intelligence to prevent human suffering, then to, to a machine, the most efficient and sensible way to prevent any possible human suffering is to wipe out all human beings because if they're not there they won't suffer you see this is the thing it's it's actually it's not the necessarily the obvious connotations of the consequences of danger although there are some obvious ones such as for example autonomous weapons and so on that could be so that could be so deadly if they're in any hands they could be deadly if they if they can uh, use in quotes artificial intelligence to choose their own targets as it were so the the one of the main themes of the book as you rightly say is to show that consciousness is something that could never be manufactured and indeed 
consciousness, I argue, and a lot of the book is devoted to this, cannot actually even have a beginning at all. You can't you can't generate consciousness, you can't create it, you can't you can't manufacture it. So all consciousness leads right back beyond beyond the Big Bang to eternity. Of course, you know, the more fundamentalist uh, scientific viewpoint is that, um, you know, consciousness arises from matter, right? That it, that well, it comes out of a sophistication of, uh, you know, then so the machines can seem to think because they, they, their, their ability to compute, you know, at, at, inf at amazing speeds uh, uh, seems like they're actually thinking through stuff. Well, yes, but they're actually, it's just like a pocket calculator, like, uh, you know, uh, we first saw in the 1970s and you, you type one plus one equals and the number two appears. And if you make, all it's doing is processing data information. So what you do, what people do is they make that pocket, the same kind of equivalent processing of information and make it more sophisticated and make it shaped like a human being, put soft skin on it, give it a human sounding voice. And, and hey, presto, people start imagining that it's conscious, but it's, it's an illusion. Now, um, it's interesting that you say that that uh, the scientific viewpoint is that consciousness is the product of matter because I have uh, photocopied uh, articles from uh, the Observer, the London Observer newspaper from the 1930s when uh, Erwin Schrödinger and Max Planck were interviewed as part of an interviewing great scientists uh, series. And each of them was asked, what, what do they think consciousness is? Where does it come from? And both of these Nobel Prize winning founders of, of quantum mechanics, some of the biggest scientific minds in history, said that they went on the record to say they believe consciousness is fundamental, not the product of anything else. It's not the product of matter. And then uh, there's uh, this chap, uh, Donald Hoffman, who's a neuroscientist who um, has recently written books and done, done interviews where he points out that all the evidence, as I've said in, in my book, Burst of Conscious Light, all the evidence points to consciousness being completely, completely fundamental. You can't make it out of ones and zeros. However complex you make a program, a program is just information and there's a fundamental distinction between information and one who can perceive information. And that's what makes us different to machines because we experience we perceive we're aware and they don't well i think what's interesting from our perspective in unity you know is that we believe what you're saying uh from from a um a, a religious or spiritual point of view mm -hmm. and so it's always good to have you know a scientific backup on that and and the fact that the uh, eminent scientists you know are, are putting these ideas forward about the fundamental uh, truth of consciousness, you know, mm. the, the fundamental um, reality of consciousness is, is fascinating. And, and we need more of that, right? Because it's easy to be, well, I wouldn't say it's easy, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't require as much rigor perhaps to be a mystic, you know, to have an inkling that, that we are mm. beings of infinite possibility, you know, based on intuition and consciousness, mm. but, but to explain it, you know, uh, scientifically, I think is is useful because you know th then you you can refute others, you know, with with uh, el with elegant arguments, right? And um, and, and, and with empirical evidence, and also with sorry, no, also ahead. with em empirical evidence. You know, um, the two of the world's leading near death experienced researchers, uh, Dr. Pim Van Lommel and Eben Alexander were kind enough to write uh, nice comments on the cover notes of, of, of my, my book. And they, they're two people along with <coughs> some others such as, such as Peter Fennick and Sam Pania have done lots of empirical research to show that the brain stops in a near-death experience in cardiac arrest, but the consciousness doesn't stop. The consciousness is still experiencing what's happening it's watching it sometimes from above the the resuscitation room even blind people who have had near-death experiences have accurately recounted specific events that happened during specifically their own resuscitation while their brainwaves were flat 
the brain was completely had no activity in it at all and yet the mind is still there it proves empirically scientifically that consciousness is not made by the brain in which case we don't we don't begin when we're conceived or born and we don't end when we die and that's what science is showing us you don't need faith anymore to believe it because the evidence is there right and you know it, it correlates very much with uh, in hinduism we call it samadhi states you know states beyond um the, the rational thinking uh, beyond even being aware at the at the sense level uh, uh, but still exam and some yogis have got you know gone into hibernation or even been buried alive for uh, quite a <laughs> while and and have um stop their breathing stop you know the heartbeat and yet they're still they're still there and they come forth from that um i think in buddhism we might call it shunyata you know the idea of yeah. this this emptiness, emptiness. Yeah. yeah and um uh, yet which cannot be it could it, it can only be experienced it can't be described right and w- one of the fascinating things I, that i liked about the, the your book is um you know because you're talking about the shroder turin which which is you know based on the the cloth that that enfolded jesus and mm-hmm. but some of the conclusions you come to you know about jesus was that he was almost a spiritual scientist right and some of the things he was saying um about light and and about um consciousness itself and where to put our attention and our awareness you know like you said really don't need religious underpinnings they they stand alone right they are so well, that's right i i don't think he was advocating that people had to be in a, a religion i don't i don't think god is religious <laughs> i right. think that i think that that if something is true it will make sense if it will if it makes sense it will stand up to rational analysis it won't there won't be contradictions within it and 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 i believe that that what jesus taught is actually totally rational reasonable uh, for, and for example he uh, predicted in some ways uh, thousands of years before scientific discoveries he referred for example to the second law of thermodynamics he said you know this is a world where where the moths eat things where rust corrupts it and where thieves will break in and steal everything nothing lasts no thing lasts forever in in this world but that there's another way of being where there aren't moths or rust or thieves where eternity prevails and that's what he was what he was alluding to and what actually does make sense when you when you set it against the second law of thermodynamics and something actually again that um that penrose points out about the second law of thermodynamics is that it points to uh, a, an Im- immense primal limitless ordered state at the at the start because that's the only way that you can have a, an arrow of time with everything going towards chaos it has to have been there has to have been order at the start and it, it's the the chance of the of the universe happening in such an ordered way by randomly is it's something like uh i think he says something like 10 to the 100 to the power of 120 to 1 against it's like you could uh you could have a for odds betting parlance you could have a 1 and then put a zero on every atom in the universe and have that as your odds to 1 and it would still be be less likely and to me that doesn't imply uh a a, a sort of uh, a creator god that sort of making the universe happen but it it does imply that where we come from is is a far beyond time beyond the big bang is a far more ordered actually simpler more natural state of being that we you, moved away yeah. from and you used the analogy of a wine glass right that uh, we have one wine glass that's that's whole and then the other one that's smashed to smithereens and the the likelihood of the the smash glass coming back together as whole you know is greater than the the create the initial creation of that wine glass right the that's right uh, which points It, out that there's there's something magnificent going on here you know that is uh, that breaks probabilities uh, you know that confounds probabilities if you like the and that that cannot be uh, anything other than like you you're saying some some infinite wisdom or you know, or consciousness or whatever you want to call it and it doesn't have to be a god right it's um 
We are well, that, actually. Yes. Oh, you said it so well. In fact, you mentioned Jesus earlier, and that's what that's what he said. Is it not written, you are gods? And that's um, also, you mentioned um, Hinduism and Buddhism. The That's one of the things that the Buddha taught as well, that all sentient beings are Buddhas, and yet they have become temporarily obscured. Uh, remove that obscuration, and they are Buddhas indeed. In other words, awoke, awoken. Awoken meaning their awareness is 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 opened. So um, this is actually something I I think if you got people in if if that you could get them all together in a room, people like uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Buddha, Muhammad, Abraham, uh, the the Hindu uh, saints, and um, Guru Nanak and Zoroaster and all of these people put them all in the room they're not going to be arguing they're not going to be fighting religious wars they'll they'll all be like brothers to each other they'll be <laughs> in agreement right very good you know I want to quote uh, the end of a, uh, one of your chapters here um, which is entitled you have no beginning or end because I, I just like the elegance of it and it, and it leads to unity uh, it says if mathematics is reliant on mind for its non-computational realization, and matter is a derivative of mind, then perhaps it is not surprising that mathematics works in describing the universe. The enigma of why the physical universe is understandable with mathematics can be seen in the terms of this book to be soluble in the same way as the mystery of why the universe began in a state of order rather than chaos. Mathematics is a product of reason, Reason is a product of simplicity and symmetry. These are both products of order. Order is also a property of no-thingness. No-thingness is a product of peace, i.e. the absence of force. Peace is a product of unity, and unity is the property of that in which all absolutes are contained. Yeah, that's wonderful, wonderful stuff there. And, and, you know, it just leads one elegantly from one point to the next. But ultimately, we're, we're entered into that state of what we would call in unity, unity consciousness, right? Mm. And uh, I love the idea of it, of, of peace being the absence of force, because just to think about life in, you know, mod, the modern world, um, it seems that, you know, we're, we're involved in, in endless uh uh, bickerings uh, and and forcing things on other people, right? And, and there's the, mm. the lack of peace, and so many of us are craving that sense of peace. And the peace doesn't come, as Jesus said again. You know, the peace doesn't come in this world uh, of time and change. It, it comes, uh, you know, from a higher awareness, which he called the kingdom, right? But mm. you, we're we're calling consciousness. The kingdom of heaven is another word for for this co conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's. Uh, I would say the kingdom of of heaven is another word for the lack of ignorance. It's our ignorance of each other's significance and size, the value of all humanity, which is at the root of uh, of human suffering. Because when people see each other as as pieces of meat or or defined in terms of shape or color or gender yeah. or whatever or religion and and sort of discriminate on those bases or um or see or, or just discriminate against anyone who's not themselves <laughs> then they're yes, not they're absolutely. missing they're they're ignorant of the the grandeur and and limitless potential of all of all humanity and and the state that that i believe jesus was referring to as the as the kingdom of god is what happens once you are aware of that completely and what he alluded to as as love loving your neighbor as yourself is just a recognition of that unity that as you say that your neighbor is yourself in the ultimate analysis well i think that was probably the most thought-provoking idea that struck me in the book and there were many but but the idea that um if if we could truly um live that awareness you know of having a absolute empathy for others and seeing the other person as ourselves uh, and have that level of love you know to mm. to love one another and really that's the only commandment Jesus ever gave us if we could really do that then we become uh, enlightened literally you know with light we we become filled with light and, and yes. that's the whole idea behind uh, the shroud of turin right the, the there's yes. some some evidence that some some remarkable uh, burst of light, of conscious light, as you call it, um, 
was was there in that shroud. And so I'd like us to, to talk about the shroud a little bit. But before that, I just to, mm. yeah, if we could just if all of us could be a little more empathetic to each other, you know, and see that we are one. Right. We we are looking from the same awareness, actually. Right. There is only one of us here in, in a deep mm. sense. Um, the, if we could begin to see that rather than div divisiveness and separation, then not only do we enlighten ourselves, but we lift everything up. And in fact, Jesus said that too. He said, if I be lifted up, I will lift all people up, right? So mm. he's a master, uh, uh, what, what would you call it? He's, he's almost like a Zen master, Jesus, you know? He, he understood the, the, the subtleties of the, of the way the universe works, I think. He, and it, it's really different, like you said, from religion. It's it's a deep spiritual um, awareness, not not necessarily a supernatural thing. It's it's very um, consistent and, and and reasonable, right? Really, what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of my definitions that I sometimes use is that that religion is the is the shadows that mankind casts on the on the light of God. So we each we each sort of formulate different shadows according to our 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 sort of cultures and habits and and sort of prejudices and so on and and that's where the division comes from I, I've, uh, I've got friends from pretty much all religions and and one of my friends is a is actually a Roman Catholic priest and one of his friends was a is a Muslim who said to him you, you know father that um, religion may divide us but God unites us <laughs> there we go yeah. And folks, you might be interested to know, but yesterday um, I was on the uh, Drayvon James show and our, our topic was uh, religion versus spirituality. Um, mm. And so uh, you can get that on the archives there. It's from uh, October, what was it yesterday? 5th, I think it is. So if you want to continue that discussion around religion and spirituality and the strengths and the weaknesses of both sides, uh, you might want to tune in to that show. So... You know, when I was studying the shroud, I was fascinated with it because I love the image of Jesus on it. You know, the mm. image of his face is so remarkable. Mm. It, it looks like the Jesus I can imagine was the real Jesus as opposed mm. to many of the milquetoast Jesuses that we see, you know, the imagery or whatever. Sure. And, um, but but then I found out that it was, um, you know, the carbon dating, you know, made it a medieval. You, you talk about well. this, of course. But but then I kind of dismissed it and forgot about it. But reading your book now again, you know, uh, there may have been some mistakes around the carbon dating. And that's and, right. Yeah, tell us. I, I mean, that. I I do um, go into a little bit about the carbon dating. I think sufficiently to show that there is great evidence that the um, that the carbon dating was based on a, a corner of the cloth that was that was had been repaired. And this isn't this is actually research by uh, was done by a couple in the states called. Uh, Sue Benford and, and Joe Marino. In fact, Joe Marino also has a has a book coming out very soon, and he already had one called uh, uh, Wrapped Up in the Shroud, where uh, he talks about the the amazing story of 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 his and his late wife's discovery regarding the regarding the the fact that the, the that corner of the cloth was was repaired several centuries ago, and that's why the if you if you actually it's something that I noticed you see I was actually a medical student but studying a, a doing a science degree during my medical studies when the carbon dating study came out so I used to read the the journal Nature each each week that you know as it as it as it came out and so I saw the uh, report of the carbon dating and something that fascinated of the shroud uh, in back in I think it was published in February '89. Something that that fascinated me was a little corner where there was some statistical data and where they they showed the the uh, bar charts of the of the dating from the different from the different labs because there were three labs who dated this corner of the cloth which now we know was actually repaired and most of what they tested wasn't from the original shroud before the repair but but if you look just even within that tiny little seven centimeter piece of cloth you can see that the error bars from the two from two of the different labs that they don't intersect and what that means is that statistically and scientifically it appears that the that the bits of cloth that they were testing even though they came from the same corner had different ages or at least different average proportions of of carbon 14 because some had some bits of them had 
more of the the more recent material that was interwoven and and some had less but uh, yeah no it's a, it's a um it's a fascinating story of how of how they of how they made this discovery and how they presented their findings to uh, one of the original Shroud of Turin research project team, uh, Raymond Rogers, who was a chemist at uh, Los Alamos Laboratories. Um, and um, initially he didn't believe them. He thought that they were, he, he thought they were going against science, that they were fringe researchers and all of this. And he said, I've got the material to prove these people wrong in five minutes, because he had some uh, samples from where the date around where the dating had been done and samples from elsewhere on the cloth and shortly before he died he went on the record and he published his findings in a, a peer-reviewed scientific journal called Thermochimica Acta at 2005 I think it was to say and he said you know I set out to prove these people wrong I've proven them right because uh-huh. yeah. the, the, the corner hold of the cloth thought, hold that thought Andrew because we have to go to the break you can okay. tell us why he, he, he knew they were right after these messages from Unity. Join us in a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. All right, welcome back to today's show. I'm with Dr. Andrew Soberman talking about his book, A Burst of Conscious Light. Fascinating read. It's uh, published, uh, you can get it in all the usual outlets, but I highly recommend you get it if you're interested in consciousness studies and the underpinnings of our unity uh, teachings and principles. It's a wonderful book. And uh, we're talking before the break a a little bit about the the Shroud of Turin, which is, again, an absolutely fascinating uh, artifact. And and, uh, Dr. Andrew goes into quite a bit of detail about it. And and you were referencing one one point there that you'd noticed something about the uh, discrepancies in the in in the journal uh, studies and and. um, so there is some doubt, right, as to, to the, the, the accuracy of these carbon-14 datings. Well, I mean, I, I would say that they accurately dated the samples that they had, but the samples right. that they had cons- consisted mostly of material that had been added much more recently than, than when the shroud was originally uh, first made in the, in the first century or, or before. Um, that's, the, that's the point, you see, that there, there's much more modern material interwoven in the, uh, through a, a repair process, which is elaborated on in, in much more detail in uh, Benford and Marino's work. And as I say, they were the people who, who actually discovered this. So I was saying about how they, they presented that to, um, to Raymond Rogers, the Los Alamos chemist. And he thought that, you know, he thought it was a nutty thing that they were saying, but he said he, he had the material, to, he thought, to prove them wrong in five minutes. But he ended up proving them right, that the chemical composition of the corner of the shroud that was dated is completely different to the chemical composition of the rest of the shroud. And uh, and as I say, if you read... Uh, if you read Joe Marino's books, then you would see in, in more detail about exactly how that how that happened. But you know, even the um, the, the the gentleman is now the the leader of the of the Oxford Carbon Dating Lab, which was he was a junior scientist during the time of the actual carbon dating. But he went on the record in a, a documentary program that was made by David Rolfe, who also made the. Uh, BAFTA award-winning film called Silent Witness, which first introduced me to the Shroud in the 1980s, although it came out in 78. But um, but in that program that he made for that David Rolfe made for the for the BBC, the 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 chap from the Oxford lab goes on the the record to say that there's so much evidence that points to a much earlier origin for the Shroud that. We, we need to look at everything again in more depth to to try and see how you know the carbon dating might fit in with with all of this other evidence because for example any sort of forensic pathologist worth their salt who who looks at the 
that the shroud can see. It's a sort of like a CSI scene, if you like, that this cloth once wrapped the recently deceased body of a man who had been tortured through being whipped. He had had a, been stabbed in the side. He'd had a cap of sharp objects placed upon his head and he'd been crucified. He'd been crucified not through the hands, as you see on all medieval art, but through the wrists, which we now know and only have known for the past hundred years or so, is the only way that it could have happened. Because anatomically, the, the the palms of the hands wouldn't have wouldn't have carried the weight of the body. Uh, and the when you look at the image on the shroud, the the people who it was a the Shroud of Turin research project was a team of of scientists led by physicist Dr. John Jackson, uh, and also including the documenting photographer Barry Schwartz, who's the one who who has the uh, the website shroud.com where you can find you know, pretty much all the research that's been done on the shroud. And what they what they they went there, they, this team of scientists, including people from NASA, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Los Alamos, and they went there and most of them said that they expected to go there, find the brush strokes in five minutes and then go back home again because they thought this was a relic. And I'm very pleased that you referred to it instead as an artifact because that's what it is. It's a it's an archaeological scientific artifact. And it's not the image isn't painted. The in fact the image is is only on the outermost surface fibrils. The the thickness of the of the changed color that makes the defines the image is only 200 nanometers in thickness which is one one five thousandth of a millimeter far far less than a than a human hair and it doesn't consist of any material that's been added as it would if it were painted it's a a chemical change in the those surface fibrils that consists of something known as oxidation and dehydration that makes that those tiny fibrils turn slightly yellow and basically it's like how paper turns sepia yellow when it's exposed to sunlight and perhaps that may be what led some of the uh, scientists such as uh, Dr. John Jackson and then later um, Dr. Paolo Di Lazzaro uh, from the Atomic Energy Institute of, uh, in, in Italy to do research based on the, the question of whether the image may have been formed by a short intense burst of, of radiant energy because you see this would account for the it's, there's distance coding in the image which you don't get in a photograph and also it has photographic negative properties those two things put together imply that the the this wasn't reflected light but the the light somehow was actually a burst of ultraviolet light seems to have come from the the dead body of the man that was that was wrapped in the shroud that's what the scientific evidence suggests very fascinating isn't it and then mm. another fascinating thing uh, there's a suggestion that um this happened when the body was not um, supine but was actually kind of floating in the air right because when we look at the hair yes. the position of the le the feet uh, and some other things that it suggests that that the uh, when the light burst happened it happened when the when that image was was vertical absolutely and i have to give my uh, Gratitude to uh, a scientist and physician, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie, who, who from Boston, he was the one who drew my attention to, to that. I, 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 now, I, now when I look at the shroud, it's blatantly obvious, but I must admit, I never saw it until I heard his, his, his lecture. Um, but he's right. I mean, uh, you can see the hair is, is hanging down on the shoulders. It's not behind. And where you would expect to see flattening at the, at the back of the body, the buttocks and the calves and so on, it's just not there. There isn't any flattening. And some people say, ah, oh, but um, when, he, when the body was lying supine in the, in the tomb, it may have uh, had rigor mortis present and that would have stopped the flattening because of the tension of the muscles. So a couple of things problems with that. One is rigor mortis is a temporary phenomenon which lasts even less time if someone dies a violent death. But secondly, as, uh, this is something where I can bring some of my knowledge of anatomy and physiology and pathology and so on as a doctor to, to bear, is that um, I know that Dr. Lavoie is correct when he says that rigor mortis only affects muscle. It doesn't affect skin. It doesn't affect the subcutaneous tissues between the skin and the muscle. And so even if rigor mortis were still there, you would still get flattening because there's sort of fatty tissue under the skin, between the skin and the muscle that would have been indented. So all of the evidence points, as, as Gilbert Lavoie 
pointed out to the fact that there are two different events that we see on the shroud. One is the blood stains, which are when it's uh, simple to explain a dead body with still moist clots of blood on the skin was was which had stopped bleeding because he'd already died was wrapped in the in the cloth and there was transfer from the skin to the cloth by a normal natural simple process uh, while the body was supine and then the second event which which happened at some later event but that later event wasn't that long after because there's no appearance of putrefaction or decay in the body um, at that later event the body became upright and as you say it seemed appears to be suspended above the ground because the feet are on are on different levels and there was a burst of radiant energy forwards and backwards as it were that formed the image both of the 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 front and the back of the body on the shroud well, what, uh, the question that then comes into my mind as a result mm. of that is, uh, wouldn't you expect that radiant energy to have enlivened him, the, the body, um, prior to him rising up? You know, it seems unlikely that this seemingly dead body would, would rise up and then there'd be the burst of energy. You know, to me, the burst of energy would happen first, which would enable the body to rise. So, well, I maybe explain that. Well, maybe, I mean, I go into this in, in more detail in, I think it was chapter chapter seven of the book, that the that the process of the body becoming vertical was, was may have been, of course, this is speculation, but may have been a, a preliminary stage to the change that happened, which allowed that allowed that body to, to, co to come back to life, as it were, or to, or to be, to, to, be metamorphosed in, into a different form. It's interesting that 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 it said that when he appeared to uh, people afterwards, they didn't quite recognise him. There was something, something somehow different to him, mm -hmm. and that and and I um, I go into um, a bit more detail to do with the uh, in in chapter seven to do with the nature of of, of enforcement against peace and and uh, about gravity and the separation of points and so on and how that all ties in together to to uh, a possible cogent explanation of 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 how the sequence happened in the way that it did and you know we need to point out that you you state many times this isn't about uh, the supernatural or the miraculous yeah. or the mysterious you know you're not particularly interested in saying well this is the this is jesus the only son of god you know we've we've no. proved it now that this is more you're talking about this this light energy that is a, yeah. a potential for all of us and and Jesus has demonstrated it in a very dramatic way and we also mm -hmm. you know have it in in near death experiences as well that's right, right? so and also so, yeah. he made a point so many times of of pointing out that um that this applied to everyone if a man's eye be single his whole body shall be shall be full of light he said and he said um you know this it's reference to the son of god he said anyone who does my father's will is my brother and uh, and I, I said um blessed are the uh, the the was it the uh the the pure in heart for they shall be called children of god um so uh, or, or or something to that effect he, he said that 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 people he was referring to other people as 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 children of god also in terms of right. becoming through 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 how they through how they live so to right. speak um so he definitely what he said also you know all these things you see me do you also can do and greater than these can you do he wasn't i believe he wasn't trying to set himself up as on a pedestal to show himself better than anyone he was showing what all human beings can be and and that's what he said he you know he he said as much his own words say that whatever religions have have tried to do to what he said afterwards right absolutely we're, we're getting towards the end of the show here, and we've got so much more to cover, but that's okay. Um, that'll force people to read the book. But but there's, the, you know, we get to we need to get to the central point, which which is this uh, essential nature of consciousness, right? And there's a couple of quotes that uh, you've used uh, quite extensively through the book um, that that uh, you, you refer to. The first one is uh, Schrodinger uh, quote: uh, "Mind is always now," and um, you know, the, the space-time continuum of, of matter and space and time are, are sort of a result of the, 
the mind uh, going through a sort of a, a separative state, if you like. And in unity, we call it the sense of separation. You know, the the or you you mentioned earlier the obscurations. You know, that cover up the true reality. But 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 the mind itself, it, and this fits in with other spiritual teachers like um, Eckhart Tolle or whatever that talk about the power of now. But I love that phrase, and this is coming from a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Mind is always now. It's a very profound statement, I think. Yeah, I, and he, Schrodinger went on to say, he said, uh, mind is always now. I therefore uh, uh, would declare the indestructibility of mind by time, because that which mind has brought to the fore cannot create the mind, nor can it annihilate it. So in other words, his point was that that actually it's uh, time only exists because there's a now otherwise there's no time and there's only a now because there's consciousness and therefore that we are the creators of time as conscious consciousness rather is the creation creator of time and therefore uh, consciousness cannot have a, a beginning or end because if we made time time can't make us or or unmake us right i think all of us somewhere in our lives have had um experiences of the subjectivity of time you know sometimes a moment could last forever other times mm. a day can pass as if it's a timeless moment and and i, th I think that speaks to this right that it, it's Indeed. very subjective well if you think about it it's always the present and that's what schrodinger said as well the present is the only thing that has no end Right. Uh, that uh, that it's it's always now in whatever whatever state of now any in this, to be conscious is 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 to be now, uh, and one can be now in the state of, of of separation of 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 time where where you and I are separate and there's space and time that demarcate our our differences from from each other, or there's the state of the of the all that one might call God or uh, the Buddha nature or whatever you call it. Of of the unity of uh, of all being, which is also a now, but it's a now in eternity that doesn't require changes to happen. Um, but it's not it's not a now like a like a statue that's fixed. But it, we don't have words for it in in our in our everyday vocabulary because everything that we say is always sort of metered in terms of in terms of change and and fixture. Right, absolutely. I was just down with a discussion this morning on my way down here I'm with my grandson today and uh, we were discussing these thoughts you know this idea that the the mind itself the rational mind the the human brain cannot conceive of these things you know because you say well okay everything's the universe well then what's outside the universe you know we see to turn in it's everything in terms of spatial or time relationships and uh the consciousness is not is not like that it's bigger uh, than that a, a friend of one pointed out, I mentioned this in the book that when I was 19 years old, someone got me to look out at the at the at the night sky and see, you know, these stars that you can see going, that are coming, the galaxies are, uh, that light is reaching us from billions of light years away. From we're seeing them as they were billions of years in the past, and yet your mind in perceiving that is is bigger than all of that. So right. your mind is is uh, contains the the universe, and this is a point that Andre Linder the uh, professor of physics at Stanford made is that actually the that and I, I reference this on my the the website um, andrewsilverman.co.uk has got the 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 links to it um, where he he actually explains that without consciousness there can there can be no time and there can be no universe that that as as human be and this is a a Stanford professor of physics pointing this out and yeah. it's actually in his book i've got a copy of it from back from 1990 it's a one of the standard textbooks of inflationary cosmology and he insisted on putting this in there about about consciousness because it made sense to him and he didn't care what you know what if other people were going to be dismissive of him for it because it it does make sense the prime quality of this consciousness of course is light right and we you talk a lot about the, the nature of light and and uh, you know, I've often felt that uh, the, the street lights, I, I, was, I get worried about it sometimes. I think the street lights or any light is, is actually spirit. And so we're, we're using spirit to light ourselves. And uh, it's like, I, I, wonder, I wonder if consciousness, you know, or light 
worries about that or you know, it's, uh, it's okay to be used in a very egalitarian <laughs> way like I, that i i didn't quite unfortunately i i didn't quite mean it like the like the the title of the book for example a burst of conscious light i i'm actually not stating that the light itself is conscious i don't think any anything is ever is ever conscious just like um uh, the way I, the the analogy that I the the way I I put it is that uh, when you turn on your radio, your radio doesn't sing to you. So if you can anything that is you can perceive is not a uh, if you can see anything, what what you're seeing is not what's conscious. So I can see you, I can see an image of you on my screen now, but what I'm seeing is an image of you. Your consciousness is by its very nature invisible, but without it there can be no vision. You cannot see unless you're conscious, but, but that consciousness is never a thing that you can measure, see, weigh, or uh, describe in any sort of, in any sensory terms. So I, I don't actually say that, that, that light is, is conscious, but what I'm saying is that, uh, that our, in our sort of physical lives as after when you know when we're born and we've got a body and we uh we sort of function through a material aegis of of existence with senses and and, and so on and the interface between that state and and the all the unity as you call it that interface at that interface is where we see light it's more than light it's beyond that light but the light that people see in the near-death experiences is is a is a clue to that because when people experience that that light they say that in that light is is all knowledge and and all love they feel somehow loved by by what is emanating emanating from there but it's it's like there there is there's something beyond that it's just we haven't got we haven't got words to describe what is what right. is invisible <laughs> right and the other quote is matter is frozen light talk yes. about that briefly yeah, this was actually, uh, this is a quote uh, from uh, Professor David Bohm, who uh, was a, uh, one of the most eminent uh, quantum, quantum physicists. And he was just pointing out uh, something that is uh, inherent within something known as quantum field theory, which is something that has been, been shown to be, to be accurate to, to, you know, uh, billions of, of tiny fractions. It's so it's so precise and and basically uh it's it's like basically uh this the thing that you, you may have, have have heard about about the um the the, the higgs boson and all of that that gives mm -hmm. that gives matter mass uh it's basically uh what uh bohm was explaining is that uh, that uh light is effectively going going backwards and forwards within the influence of the of this higgs field and that's that is what uh, what makes matter material, if you like. I mean, I mean, matter is is almost entirely is almost entirely empty space. But it, it appears that it's just a, a it's a condensation of energy, which is what you can see from from E equals m c squared. And uh, Bohm pointed out that that on the way to to condensing out of no thingness, out of nothing at all, if you like, that. Uh, light is the is the interface between that state of of nothing and uh, and matter. So that basically, perhaps, if matter and space and time is a result of our separation, which has happened through our limitation that that makes us each distinct, dividing our ourselves up into selves, so we become selfish and limited and and restricted, then someone like Jesus in living the life that he does that undoes all of that barrier and and recognizes that the neighbor as self loving the neighbor as self and so on is beginning to undo that restriction that that freezes light in matter and that's when matter starts to shine and it was reported during his life that at times it's, I think it's called the transfiguration he was seen to shine but but not just he but there are you know other people throughout history like the Buddha and so on who often people saw saw light around them this may actually be an actual physical thing that 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 occurs due to someone being having more more peace within them as you rightly point out all of the religions 
point towards peace in in you know in hebrew people say shalom alekem in 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 arabic they say salam alaikum and, and salam or shalom is is peace and and, and you know uh, jesus also was referring to peace as did the the buddha and all the all the uh, other all the other great teachers and it's the absence of of enforcement so it's the the freedom of of choice that we have through losing prejudice and and restriction and limit that divides us into selves and and helps us see that the the other and the self are are one exactly beautifully put um let me tell you about next week's show folks then i'm going to ask andrew to give us some encouragement for the week just something that, that's going to uplift this okay so if you can be thinking about that andrew and then i'll tell everybody about next week next week uh healer and author suzanne worthley joins me and we're going to discuss her book it's called um, an energy healer's book of dying for caregivers and those in transition because this is our month looking at death dying transformation and the uh, emergence of spirit or consciousness so it fits in with that with that theme so join me for that next week but right now we're going to hear closing words of wisdom from uh, dr <laughs> andrew silverman well so basically what i'm what i'm saying in the in the book is it's not just i who am saying it i i draw on evidence from you know many eminent scientists who have, have pointed out in the past that actually you as a as a human being are are bigger than the whole physical universe in significance and and in your in your potential that your existence didn't didn't begin a few decades ago when uh, two gametes met and and uh, and started to to divide and so on you actually have no beginning you you actually your existence goes goes beyond the big bang and through to through to eternity and that whenever people think oh but i'm you know if anyone ever thinks that they're that they're not of, of value or that they don't that they don't matter when you look at the whole entirety of of space as i say in the in the night sky all those billions upon billions of stars all of that uh sort of if you like dead matter and yet there you are this little sparkle of what's watching from behind your eyes and experiencing and and feeling your your dreams and and hopes and so on that 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 allows you to 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 do that to be conscious even is bigger than the universe and you can see it very simply through a simple thing called called freedom of choice the fact that you can make decisions means that you have mind over matter every single moment excellent way to end the show thank you so much andrew thanks folks for listening tune in next week wonderful show indeed thanks thank you for listening this is unity online radio the voice of an awakening world Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. 